For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Scripture is so important, it's the fundamental of all fundamentals. In fact, our entire worship service is always centered around the truth of Scripture. The sermons we preach, the songs we sing, everything revolves around that. So thanks for doing that, Alec. It's important for us. It's also um, really important for us as a church because um, Scripture is where we come up with these pillars that we're talking about all the time. And so they come straight out of Scripture. It's what we see um, the early church doing as they put into practice the Great Commission from which they were called to go and make disciples. And that's exactly why we have that same mission in this church. We have a vision to reach the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We do that by taking our next steps towards Christ together day by day. And for many of us, that sometimes can seem really daunting, right? But that's why as a church we remind ourselves each week that it is okay to not be okay. Each one of us are in process at some level or another. We are flawed people. Um, and, but the point, biggest point of that is that we don't ever want to stay in that not okay place, which is why we have that third thing we remind ourselves of each week, that we love you enough to tell you the truth in the person, words, and works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly why we stay so focused on Scripture in this church. Now today, we're going to start the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And although it's broken into six chapters, it's really just one continuous letter. And as you recall, the first three chapters are all about belief, and the second three chapters are all about behavior. And we've spent the past few months covering the topics that you see up there in blue. Those are the fundamentals of our belief. And we're going to continue to focus on these as we work through the rest of chapter 3, and that's going to take us all the way up to Thanksgiving. We'll take a little break for Advent, and then we'll come back at the beginning of the new year, and we'll start into chapter 4 where we'll focus on behavior. Now, beliefs are important because they inform our identities, and our identities, they shape our behavior. So this is all kind of connected. And that's why we've been using this tombstone image up here throughout the entire Ephesian study we've been in, because it helps us think hard about our identities. Every tombstone has at least three common features. First, there's a birth date, and everyone celebrates their birth date at least once a year, right? And that birthday causes us to consider this question, where did I come from? We also know that there was a death date on tombstones, and that causes us to consider the question, where will I go when I die? And in between those two dates, there's a little tiny dash. Maybe it's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years that we get on this earth. None of us are promised tomorrow. It's actually a very short dash. And that's why it's so important that that causes us to consider the question, why am I here? So where did I come from? Where am I going when I die? Why am I here? Three key existential questions that we all must have answers to. And Paul has been helping us answer these questions from God, from the author of truth himself. So if you've missed any of the sermons in this series, it's really easy to catch up. On your lunch break, just go to our 
our website, fourmile.org. It's really that easy. You can find our sermons, 20, 25-minute sermons, and you can get caught up in just a couple of weeks. Now, today's message really just has three main points. First, we're going to focus on the importance of perspective. Then we're going to look at this mystery that Paul's unpacking for us. And then we're going to study the monumental implications that this truth has for all of us. Now, chapter 3 is actually a very interesting section within Paul's broader letter that he writes here. It starts out with this phrase, for this reason. And so we know Paul's about to unleash something really big here, so we've got to kind of pay attention. But then he essentially presses pause, and he then launches into this lengthy but hugely important digression after the dash you see up there where he explains some mysteries that have been revealed. He talks about the role that ministers play, and then he gives us even more about the church. And then he picks back up again later in in chapter 3 by repeating the phrase, for this reason, and then he launches into a profound prayer. So to properly understand chapter 3, it's vital that we spend just a little bit of time chewing on this opening line. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, beyond being used to set something up big, the phrase for this reason is also a transitional phrase. It links everything from chapter 3 to chapter 2, where you recall Paul's describing the church, the body of Christ. It's so important, this church, this message, that he's about to announce something really big about it. But before he does, Paul is very careful to describe the perspective from which he writes. He writes as a prisoner. Now, historians tell us that Paul wrote this letter as a prisoner of Rome while awaiting trial from the emperor Nero. So it would have been natural for him to describe himself as a prisoner of Rome. But that's not Paul's perspective here. He says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles those saints who were formerly cut off from God. It's so critical that we appreciate Paul's perspective as he writes this letter, because a person's perspective so often provides insight into their motivations in life. For example, when I was a a combat engineer company commander way back in the day, I'd always make time each day to link up with my soldiers, and I'd ask them each a really simple question. I'd just say, Hey, man, what you up to? And it was very interesting. Some would respond very dutifully. They would say, sir, I'm preparing a turret defilade fighting position for an M1 tank. Others would respond a little more practically. They'd say, sir, I'm just earning my paycheck today by digging this big hole. And still others, in a more patriotic way, they'd say, sir, I'm just protecting my fellow brothers in arms, these tankers who are going to assume this position, this fighting position against the enemy, and I'm doing it all for the sake of my country. So while they're all just digging the same hole, each had a different underlying perspective that shaped the approach they took to the task at hand. So Paul's perspective wasn't as a prisoner of Rome. He saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And that helps us appreciate Paul's motivation as he writes this letter to his dear friends. It seems he doesn't want them to be upset that he's been imprisoned, because it might weaken their faith. Prison was normally for criminals, those who'd done something wrong. 
But Paul hadn't done anything wrong. He wants them to know that he was in prison because he was carrying out his commission from Jesus. You recall when Ananias came to Paul and Paul's vision was restored after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul received his commission. First, he was told that he was a chosen instrument of God. And we've been focusing on that word choose or how God chooses us from the very beginning of Ephesians. It's such an important thing because when God chooses us to do something, there's absolutely no way we'll ever take our commission lightly. Second, he says his commission included taking the gospel message to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Roman authorities, and he was doing just that. And then third, Ananias informed him that he would suffer for Jesus' name. And here he is now, imprisoned for Jesus. So that's why Paul isn't grumbling about his situation. No, his perspective doesn't allow for any of that wimpy nonsense. He's carrying out his commission from Jesus, and it's unfolding just as he's come to expect that it would unfold. That's why he isn't writing about how discouraged he is to be in jail after all that he's done for God. He isn't questioning why God has allowed this to happen. He hasn't even taken a stoic approach that we're so prone to these days, where we convince ourselves that sometimes we just have to take the bad with the good. Now, instead of sulking about his imprisonment and his impending sentence, which would likely lead to his demise, Paul was serving God by writing letters with whatever time he had left, carrying out his commission to the very end. You see, if we live our lives from a worldly perspective, where we're focused on our comfort, prosperity, popularity, whenever we face hardships, such as illness or disappointment or loss in our lives, we'll no doubt see ourselves as victims of circumstances. But if instead, we live our lives from a perspective of responding to our commission, our calling from Jesus himself, when we face hardships, we'll battle them as soldiers enlisted in Christ's army, carrying out his orders to achieve his will as part of God's grand design set in place before the foundation of the world. In other words, it's a perspective that comes from realizing that we're actually part of something cosmic here. And to be clear, this is not one of those just suck it up and put a good face on through the tough times. This is about godly courage, the kind that springs forth from our underlying motivations that we have to carry out that commission that we receive from God. It's the kind of courage God emboldens his people out when they respond to their commission. As Paul shows us, hardships are just part of what happens whenever we take up our cross and we follow Jesus. So what if we've never experienced suffering for Christ? Well, it's most likely because we probably haven't responded to our commission yet. It's probably because we don't have Paul's perspective. We haven't gotten over ourselves yet. Perhaps we haven't begun to put Jesus first or other people first in our lives. We haven't ever gone to make disciples. We haven't even taken that first step to sign up for a pillar and put it in place in our everyday ordinary life. Why? Because we all just want to play it safe. We don't want to upset our neighbors. 
our coworkers, don't want to irritate any family members or friends with the truth that unless Christ is their personal Lord and Savior, they're still up there on that wide, dark path headed for eternal destruction. Because if we preach the truth of the person, words, and works of Christ by living out this truth in our everyday, ordinary lives, we're probably going to suffer, just like Jesus did, just like Paul did, who went and preached the truth that the Gentiles were co-heirs with the Jews, and the Jews didn't like that, so they had him imprisoned. And that's exactly the kind of stuff we can expect whenever we pursue truth like Paul did. So appreciating Paul's perspective is key for us to grasp why he includes this insightful digression. He wants the Gentile believers who may be a little disheartened by his imprisonment to know that he's there for them because he's responded to his commission. Now, Paul begins by assuming that they've all heard of God's grace that was given to him for the Gentiles. Now, first of all, God's grace had saved Paul. Think about who Paul was, a Jew of Jews, a blasphemer of Christ, a persecutor of Christians. He had even presided over Stephen's death. If anyone was unworthy of God's grace, it was Paul. But second, Paul maintains that grace was given to him for the benefit of the Gentiles. So not only was Paul an example of someone who was not worthy to receive God's grace, just like the Gentiles, but Paul was also saved by grace so that he might be used by God to share the grace with the Gentiles. Do you see the lesson here? We didn't receive grace just for ourselves. We didn't receive grace just to go to heaven. We received it so we could be part of Christ's church, instruments of God's master plan for reaching those who don't know Christ. It's been God's plan before the foundation of the world. And Paul describes it as a mystery that had been revealed to him. As you may recall, Paul used this term mystery back in chapter 1. So let's just review what it means. Recall that this word mystery, in this context, does not mean a vagueness or some mystical component of our faith. It also doesn't mean something that is incomprehensible to us. Rather, it's all about this term, revelation. It's something that's not discoverable by the unaided human mind. It's a truth that's out of reach to humans until God reveals it. And that's a really important distinction for all of us to make here. We saw it in chapter 1, and Paul writes about it here again, that by God's grace, Paul has received this revelation. You see, it's not Paul. Paul's agency couldn't do this. He couldn't do it on his own because man's intellect is not adequate enough to grasp it. But God does reveal it through the Holy Spirit. And Paul's job in response to his commission is to transmit it to others. And it's the same for all of God's children. Now, what we're going to find next is that there's actually two mysteries that Paul is referring to. There's a general mystery and a specific mystery. So first, let's dive into this general mystery. That's the mystery of Christ. That's the blue text you see up there. We discussed a little bit in chapters 1 and a little bit further in chapter 2. And this mystery is that God, before the foundation of the world, 
He chose his saints, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, to be his adopted children. Let that sink in. This is even before he created them. He chose them. And then after he created them, there's a fall. Mankind began following after the course of the world, giving in to the temptations of the prince of the power of the air, the devil, and distorting God's gifts by the passions of our flesh. And as a result, we all became dead to him. That was our condition. And then Paul used this wonderful transition, but God. But God rescued his adopted children. He redeemed them by sending his own son to actually become their sin, to be crucified as a once and for all sufficient sacrifice so that God's adopted children might be rightful heirs of his kingdom. And then if that weren't enough, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell his adopted children as a seal of that inheritance so they might be made alive in Christ. It's not something that will happen, it's something that's already happened. You may recall from this graphic we studied a few weeks back, it was around the 24th of July or so, it was all about faith. That's how we're saved. And that was God's plan that he had in place before he even created things. And it was revealed to Paul and to other apostles that by grace, God's unmerited favor, we've been made alive, raised up, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. God's grace is the source of our salvation. Paul already taught us that. We're not responsible to any of it. It's all from God. And the way we experience it is through faith. That is the mechanism. It's our response to God's amazing grace that through faith, by believing in this truth and behaving in step with it as the Holy Spirit walks us across that bridge up there, it's simply the most amazing, profound, and glorious mystery that's ever been revealed in the history of the world. And that's why we all need to take as much time to marvel at it the way Paul seems to be doing as he refers to it over and over again. But then there's even more. There's a particular mystery as well. And it's not just that the Gentiles are part of this plan too. And how do we know that's not it? Well, because it's actually foretold back in the Old Testament in many places that when the Messiah came, that he was going to be saving more than just the Jews. And I put two up here, one from Zechariah, one from Isaiah. We're not going to read it, but it's all over the Old Testament. So it shouldn't have been a surprise to the Jews that when this Messiah came, he came to save others too. Now, the Jews may not have liked it, but if they knew their scripture, that part of the mystery had already been revealed. The part that hadn't yet been revealed, the particular mystery, is that they're now on equal ground. And this is huge. Paul writes, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the Jews and Gentiles are now on equal footing in Christ because in the Christian church, the hostility has been eliminated. In the past, Gentiles could become Jews if they got circumcised and if they adhered to certain laws and customs but they were still called proselytes by the Jews, which means they had a lower status. They were not fully Jews. 
But in Christ's church, Gentiles don't become Jews. They both, Jew and Gentile alike, become something different, something new. They become Christians. And they are now co-equal because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's absolutely no hierarchy. And that's the particular mystery. That's the text that Cammie had been preaching on for the past three weeks. That's what it was building towards as we study today. Now let's briefly recap what we learned. At creation, God was in a personal relationship with Adam and Eve. But after the fall, sin separated mankind from God. God hated man's sin so much that he wiped out the earth by sending a flood, preserving only his remnants in Noah. Then God made a covenant with Abraham, setting the Jews apart as God's chosen people. He gave them the law that showed them how he wanted them to live. And the law separated the Jews from the rest of mankind, who's referred to as the Gentiles. Paul describes the Gentiles in chapter 2 as separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, part of the mystery God revealed through Paul was that the Gentiles were brought near to God. That's the language Paul uses, and it was done so by the blood of Christ. And of course, the Gentiles represent the rest of mankind. So you see, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to atone for the sins of the entire world. That means it's open to all now. There's no more divisions. The dividing wall of hostility that the law created was broken down in his flesh, Paul writes. You see, the particular mystery that Paul reveals is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, someone asked me last week after church, why is this such a big deal? Why does Paul take so much time to lay this out in his letter? Why do we as a church spend four weeks now on this lesson? Well, it just happens to be the biggest inflection point in all of history. It's actually quite epic when you think about it because it marks the major shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the realization of the new covenant that was foretold throughout the Old Testament by prophets such as Jeremiah and Isaiah. You see, there was no church in the Old Testament. It did not come into existence until God sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to establish Christ's church, which is now open to anyone who places their faith in Christ. So God's presence is no longer in an ark or a cloud or the temple. It's now in his people, his church, us. So this is a major shift and therefore, its implications for us individually and as a church are monumental. It means we are a central part of God's plan to redeem his people. Do you see how cosmic this is in magnitude? It's why we must all take our commission so seriously, just like Paul did. It's why it's so damaging whenever we begin to discriminate against other people by the way they look by the color of their skin, by their political affiliation, the denomination that they're a part of, or when we sit in judgment on other people, chucking snowballs at our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see how those behaviors 
all work against God's plan. Because his plan is to unite his people in Christ. That's something for all of us to work on this week. Be mindful of how often we are so capable of whipping snowballs at people. Every time we get irritated, attacking other people because they just don't see things the same way we do. The Holy Spirit was sent to unite the church, bringing God's adopted children into communion with him and with each other, calling them to set aside all differences for the sake of Christ, following after him, whatever the cost. May God help us grasp the cosmic nature of this truth so that he might change our perspectives and our motivations so that we won't be able to help ourselves but to respond to our commission to go and make disciples with all we've got, courageous through the challenges that will most certainly come with living on our commissions in our everyday, ordinary lives. And that's why the revelation of this mystery is such a big deal, because it changes absolutely everything. 